Economics as a discipline is riddled with paradoxes. We often want economists to be able to predict the next recession or the next big crisis, while we also dismiss many economic ideas as just belonging to one ideology or one school of thought. Where is the science in economics? How much of the discipline is experimentation? How much of it is careful observation of the world and how much is hype? Economist Ajay Shah joins us today on the Pragati podcast to talk about the dismal science. Welcome to the Pragati podcast, a weekly talk show on public policy, economics and international relations. I'm your host Pavan Srinath. Ajay Shah is a professor at the National Institute for Public Finance and Policy in New Delhi. He's no stranger to most of my listeners. He's a popular columnist. He has a fantastic blog at blog.theleapjournal.org and his scholarly work is loosely written and accessible to all. Most recently, Ajay has co-authored the book In Service of the Republic: The Science and Art of Economic Policy along with Vijay Kelkar. If you're in any way a student of public policy, this book is a must. We'll start our conversation with Ajay after a short break. We would like to thank HDFC Life Insurance for supporting this show. HDFC Life has created an online video series called Behind the Journey with some of the most interesting people from the creative and entertainment industry. It explores the stories that are behind the glitz and the glamour of the spotlight and the screaming fans. Let's listen to a snippet from the episode featuring music producer Ritwiz. Financial planning is extremely extremely important especially for like a person like me who like to splurge a lot. um but i think once you have a, a goal set in your mind i think back your head you also know that okay cool i need to stop at a certain point and i need to like plan this out because if you really truly care about what you want to do in 5 years and 10 years you will save and you will make sure that that dream becomes a reality as you just heard setting goals is crucial for your finances as well as your career you can watch all episodes of behind the journey on the hdfc life insurance youtube channel youtube.com/hdfclife Take control of your personal goals with HDFC Life's financial solutions. Plan now with HDFC Life Insurance. Terms and conditions apply. HDFC Life Insurance Company Limited, IRDAI Registration Number One Zero One. Hi, I'm Pavan Srinath, and welcome to the Pragati Podcast. I'm here with Dr. Ajay Shah today. Uh, Dr. Shah, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me here. You've recently written a book. called in service of the republic the art and science of economic policy with um, vijay kelkar and i absolutely loved the book and you have a great podcast with amit verma as well where you talk about the book and the way the indian state and indian policy making has evolved over the last 70 odd years today i want to focus on the science part the science of economic policy making and even there i want to first focus on the science of economics itself uh, before getting into the application of economics which would be uh, policy so here you had a very interesting blog post way back in 2012 where you compare and contrast economics and physics and while the entire economic profession might have a physics envy at some level and that's been discussed elsewhere too the analogy you draw is to the progress between tycho brahe johannes kepler and newton could you elaborate on that for our listeners sure uh, the sequence that worked out in history was that tycho brahe was the guy who built a good data set and until that data set came about uh, there was really no deal so it's fascinating to know that at the time of copernicus 
who proposed what you might consider a blindingly obvious proposition that the earth goes around the sun and not the other way around. The data sets of the time actually did not prove this so clearly. So right. the, the state-of-the-art data set of the time was basically from the Greeks. It was an extremely low-quality data set. And you could tell horrible stories about epicycles based on that data. Or you could claim that the planets moved in circles around the sun, which is also untrue, which is what Copernicus believed. And so Copernicus also had to put epicycles into his models. And with the low-quality data, it was actually not that obvious. Right. The breakthrough came when Tycho Brahe built a better data set. So it's important to see the role of that better data. And then came the first milestone of analyzing that data, which was done by Kepler. Uh, it is interesting that Tycho Brahe was no great friend of Kepler, but late in his life, he understood that the only guy who's going to make progress with this data is Kepler. And so the entire data set went to Kepler. So the idea that planets could be in elliptical orbits comes from Kepler and his sort of analysis of that data, right? So Kepler analyzed that data and of course proposed Kepler's laws. The planets move in ellipses, sweep out equal times in equal areas and so on. And in that framework of ellipses and the Tycho Brahe data set, it's of course blindingly clear that Copernicus was right. It is the planets that go around the sun and not vice versa. And Kepler could do this without any epicycles. And that was an absolute breakthrough. So that is stage two. After you've got a data set, you've built some broad empirical regularities around uh, that data. And that set the stage for stage three, with, which is Newton, who tried to tell a deeper theoretical story that would predict those empirical regularities. And this is, of course, the dream running in the mind of everybody who's been brought up on the history of science that we first establish some good data sets. And then stage two, we find statistical regularities in those data sets. And then stage three, we build some theory around it. Um, and even now, physics is chasing a grand unified theory, which may or may not exist. right? But, but this is always a progression that first you build the data sets, then you discover the empirical facts about the data sets. And then uh, you dream of what theories could actually be going on? What could be the theoretical machinery at work in that? So if this was how physics progressed, how would that compare to how the profession of economics has progressed? There are two key differences that I think we need to worry about. The first is that economics measurement is often truly awful. Right. Okay, so many of us are in love with words like GDP, but as a, a head of CSO once said, if you come into my kitchen, you will not eat my meal. <laughs> uh, there, it is very, very difficult to observe the national account statistics. We do wrong by taking these things seriously. Uh, the financial markets data is great because you observe a transaction, a time, order, a quantity. You know These things are observed perfectly. Inside an e-commerce company, you will see the transaction flow and that's great. By the time you get to the accounting data presented by firms, it is good, but there are some frictions, there are some difficulties. By the time you go to households and ask them questions, uh, it is becoming more difficult because many households may not truthfully answer or may not even remember. And it is more of a stretch. So the data you may not quality, be able to sample certain houses as well, right? They can yeah, be there will be difficulties in sampling. And by the time you get to household survey data sets, there is quite a crisis, again, particularly in India, 
about administration. It is very difficult to organize a large team of field workers who will honestly go out into the field, meet the households that they were supposed to meet, write down the information faithfully. We're a country where school teachers don't show up to teach. So we have to worry when some civil servants are expected to go out and obtain data. So the measurement side of economics is extremely weak. And for a long time, I think we have to make progress on measurement. The second dimension in which economics is different is that there are relatively few universal laws. Okay. Uh, this is where physics envy really leads us astray. Amazing dogma of physics is all the natural laws are identical at all places in time and all locations in the universe. It is amazing that far away in the stars, there is an explosion going off with exactly the same laws of nature as those that prevail in front of us in a lab, in an experiment. But the humanities and the social sciences are not like that. There are actually many, many different locales and they each have their own logic. They each have their own working. The world is actually made up of tens of thousands of data sets and each data set has its own story. There is much less opportunity for generality. And for a long time, I think our job is to just go deep dive into one data set after another and learn what is going on there derive these empirical regularities, have low arrogance about having theory, about having a deep understanding of what is going on. So I think of economics as a lot of applied statistics. Okay. with a little bit of theorizing thrown in. There is a so, sprinkling of useful theorizing. Most of the time I feel our frontier is just in opening up data sets and listening to what's going on and uh, discovering the basic facts about the world around us. This to me is the frontier of economics for a long time. I come from a training in the biological sciences. So while I had to study physics and sort of use it in my work, I sort of enter the world of policymaking and public policy analysis also from that frame where it's about messy, complex systems and us being able to get a tool or two which gives us some insight into some part of this this beast, right? And so, economy so that, is... That's a much better metaphor. But I will still say that a fruit fly is a fruit fly. You could do reproducible experiments with fruit flies all over the world. Yes. There are no interesting reproducible experiments in economics. Each locale is different. You move 50 kilometers and the answer changes. Right. So in economics, you need to be far more focused on local knowledge. So good knowledge is found by growing roots, by deeply understanding each locale. And uh, each place will surprise us. Each data set will surprise us. So the science as a whole is still having its firm foundations in the data and the empirics rather than in very complex theories that can, models that can explain a lot of things. Yeah, that, that is my view of the world. I feel that we should not be so excited about trying to build general frameworks. We should make progress in a more inductive process of looking at the world, looking at the data, describing lots of data sets, not being too proud, making claims about causality and making claims about theory. So here I understand that things are particularly bad when it comes to high quality studies of India because of paucity of data and a whole host of reasons. For and there might also be perverse incentives in the in the profession of economics. But before we sort of get into that, could you tell us about how, say, the American system, which where there's a lot of money that's been thrown in, there have been a lot of economists who have worked. How has the knowledge developed? in the US about how various economic forces work in macro and micro and other things. Like, for example, you know, we often read 
famous essays, right, written by a great scholars. You have Hayek talking about price. You have uh, many people who have uh, propounded these great theories. You have Coase talking about the firm. How does that square with evidence from the real world, with perhaps a role for experimentation and experiments? Uh, how does that theory and that uh, evidence um, fit if in? If you look in the journey of ideas, at first, economics was done in English, and there were violent disagreements about almost anything. So you had uh, many, many schools of thought and they each seemed to endlessly debate with each other and you could never settle disputes. Uh, and was the, that again because of a lack of data? Do you have schools of thought when one can't had, be... I'm, I'm telling it in historical uh, sequence. Right. And uh, folks like Samuelson built a new construct where the hope was that uh, we will be able to do more theorizing and uh, we will be able to build data sets and we will be able to confront the alternative views of the world with testing through econometrics. And we will actually close some of these debates where we will settle things one way or the other. Samuelson himself uh, said much later in his life that the great disappointment of his life was the failure of econometrics at settling disputes. So this okay. is a messy subject. I, I don't want to pretend that there is a great economic science in the United States. There are problems everywhere. Um, I want to worry more about the sociology of science. Finally, uh, economists are people and people respond to incentives. So economists also respond to incentives. And uh, we have these very perverse problems that come about in economics because there is no reality check in academic economics. So let me start at a contrast in engineering. Okay, so okay. how does research in engineering make progress? The research in engineering makes progress first because these are black and white truths about the nature of matter and the design of some system that is replicable by other people. And it faces the test of the real world that success and respect is when your design is put into motion in the real world and it becomes a machine, it becomes a device, it becomes a product and it goes and has some real world impact. So classic stories about Researchers in Stanford and Berkeley, John Hennessy in Stanford, David Patterson in UC Berkeley, who built novel ideas around CPUs. And then those ideas went out, became corporations, became devices, became parts, and powered the modern computer revolution. So the reality check is there that the ideas go out into the world and actually turn into machines that walk and talk and run. And that is the truth. In economics, we are much more limited because... Most economics is cut off from the world. Right. Most economists are cut off from the world. And this again goes back to the incentives of the profession that we've created a world in which academic economists look at each other and control each other's life and career. So okay. how do you get a job? How do you get promotions? Because you get peer-reviewed pubs. Who is the source of the peer-reviewed pubs? Other economists. So we are just pleasing each other. This is far more vulnerable to fads and fashions. and Every few years, we seem to go through one fad after another. There is a lack of that ultimate connection to reality, that ultimate sense of solving problems and making progress. So this is a deep sociological problem in the way the profession has structured because the profession has moved so far away from reality. Uh, Larry Summers, who is a great economist uh, who is at Harvard, uh, has written that perhaps a lot of the interesting work will move off to business school and to public policy school okay. where there is a greater connection to reality. 
Okay. So we'll have less of this angels on pinheads problem when we get it out of an econ department where the only judge is other economists. And we move it to business schools and public policy departments where there is a greater connection to reality and respect flows from doing something real, from doing something practical, from having some connection with the world. So I think that there are these sociological problems that you've got to think about of what are economists doing? What are, what is their incentive? I'm not excited that there is a sense of progress. I feel the only real progress happening is that we're improving some data sets. Other than that, uh, we continue to be stuck uh, reinventing one idea after another, chasing one fad after another. And so in this, uh, you talk about economists and sort of connection to reality and connection to the field um, and sort of outside of academic departments. So do the recent trends in development economics reflect this? So we have seen sort of the growth of the randomized control trials sort of method of approaching certain things, the growth of people doing quasi-experiments and natural experiments and so on to find evidence for various um, claims. Is this progress in the right direction then? or So first, I'm not excited about any puritanical idea that one methodology or one technique is correct and is better than others. So I think that we have a problem if we start thinking that there is only one correct method correct. and that is the randomized control trial and this is the gold standard. It is not the gold standard. It has many problems. In field after field, we know that the process of winning knowledge is much more eclectic. It needs much more creativity. So I think there are many pathways to the truth. Sometimes pure theory is interesting. Sometimes you could learn from lab experiments. Sometimes you could learn from field experiments. I remain convinced that above all, you learn from the empirical analysis of data sets. I think that the non-experimental approaches of analyzing large data sets remains the most fruitful pathway through which we have learned about the world, about economies. And a lot of that would be poo-pooed as mere descriptive research. I have no qualms about saying that knowledge is knowledge, even if it's mere descriptive knowledge. Our, our puzzle is to understand the world. And a large fraction of knowledge about the world is descriptive. And there's nothing wrong with that. We should be very comfortable describing the world, we should consider it very important to describe the world. So I, I don't share this puritanical notion that there is only one technique through which you can learn about reality. I think there are many eclectic approaches. And there uh, it lends itself to a biology uh, analogy again, right? Because taxonomy is fundamental to understanding any other things. First, you need the categorization before you can layer on other layers of meaning. And uh, the same happens when people sequence a genome or a, now a transcriptome and other things. You want to be able to categorize it and observe it first. Or to take biology as an example, when you look back at Darwin proposing the grand idea of biology, theory of evolution, what was it? Did he do experiments? No, there was not a single experiment in that. He looked at the world, he traveled around the world and he thought a lot about the world. He looked at enormous amounts of data. He just consumed facts upon facts upon facts in his head. So it was a very large data set that got him thinking and he came up with the single grand blinding insight about the world. And that's really a great achievement and more power to that. So this is a reminder that let's not wear methodological blinkers. Uh, in the modern world, if Darwin tried to submit a paper, they would probably say that this is a bunch of unsubstantiated assertions. And I, I feel that there is a real problem going on there. Once again, it comes back to the sociology of economics that what we've created is something out of uh, the Lord of the Flies. There are a lot of 
angry young boys who are trying to shoot down each other's work. That seems to be the nature of a lot of economics publishing. And uh, somewhere in all that, we've lost sight of the interesting features of the world and our attempts at understanding the world and describing the world. Over here, is it very important to also move from perhaps core economic principles to things like what you talk about in your book, where you talk about sort of trying to get even a rough theoretical framework of how governments work, right? Even if it doesn't have predictive ability necessarily or, you know, sort of deep classification or analytical ability, that rough model of how uh, X might lead to Y, how one government action might lead to an outcome becomes far more important than having very deep theoretical knowledge of how to do a very rigorous, say, cost-benefit analysis or, or something else in policy. Once again, the sociology of science comes in the way that uh, once we define these narrow things called departments and we define a list of journals in which you have to publish in order to win a job or a promotion, then actually there's a great narrowing of the mind that goes with that. The world is complicated. We should grapple with the world. We should try to figure out the world. And I wish there was more incentive for researchers to think about the world and understand the world. In this book, we don't worry so much about publishability and the journals, and that's how we make progress. So I feel that really the biggest thing that we have to get out of is our own blinkers of what is a paper, what constitutes research, what is publishability. So when I was young, I was always told that you need to have an overwhelmingly powerful publication orientation in order to make progress in the field. Today, I feel that publication orientation is one of the more harmful things that can afflict a person. You've got to be interested in the world. You've got to have curiosity about the world. You've got to want to understand the world. And then many products may come out of it. Some of them can be essays. Some of them can be more technical articles that may be acceptable to conventional journals. Some of them can be books. But our loyalty should be to understand the world. And that brings me to the RCT phenomenon. I think it's important to understand the sociological foundations about how RCT became important. On one hand, you have the simplistic managerialism of funders. So you have a donor agency like the UK DFID that is constantly under attack inside the UK, which is being told, you guys don't deliver value. We want to shut down this agency. We want to pull back its funding. It would like to come up with simplistic arguments about what is impact. So you get this whole idea of measurement that... We went into this district, we launched a program and so many children who used to be stunted managed to fare better. So there is this simplistic notion that if we push more for measurement, we'll make progress. So there was one strong incentive that there were principal agent problems between citizens and bureaucracies, between the top management of an aid bureaucracy and the juniors in an aid bureaucracy. Or even if you consider a philanthropic foundation, you have principal agent problems between senior people in a philanthropic foundation and the junior employees where the seniors will ask the juniors, show me that your grants made a difference to the world. And then suddenly you get this whole accent on quantification and measurement. And that straight away gives you a narrowing of the mind because you look for simplistic, crude notions of impact. So if there was a funder who was giving money to Charles Darwin or to Frederick Hayek, you would probably have been disappointed because you're not able to demonstrate any impact. So this is one kind of sociological problem 
where RCT became very appealing because it allowed every bureaucracy to look good. So the bureaucracy said, we will do the tiny class of problems where we will go to Bihar and we will add vitamins into the diet of some children and they will do better in school and I will be able to show this clinical trial evidence to my bosses and my bosses will be happy and my bosses will be able to show it to the taxpayer and everybody is satisfied. And of course, this is a grossly suboptimal use of money. There are 100x, 1000x better uses of money in terms of fostering the development of India. But leave it be. We are not actually interested in the problem. We are interested in each person getting ahead in their career. The flip side of this was the different sociological problem amongst the economics journals and the economics profession, where in that Lord of the Flies game, we got a reductio ad absurdum that the journals and the referees concentrate on shooting down any paper, which is not double quotes rigorous. Okay. And so you're down to only one notion of what is rigorous that it's done as a randomized clinical trial. And if that is there, I have proved beyond all reasonable doubt that some little proposition is correct. There's a shrinking of the mind. There's a narrowing of the discourse because a lot of other important methodologies and questions are not allowed to flourish and triumph. And in fact, most good knowledge is produced through those other channels. So in the ugliness of the game of journals and referees, the RCT became very valuable because it seemed to produce a decisive answer. And even in a lot of the flies facing unpleasant editors and referees, it was not easy for the editors and referees to say there is a flaw in this. There is, of course, a dark secret about the RCT implementation, similar to the household survey implementation, that you have some X number of field employees wandering around in rural Gujarat, some of them measuring a control, some of them administering a treatment. What is the actual quality of uh, implementation that is there in all this. Nobody counts that. Nobody thinks about that. We just believe that because an author asserted that this is true, it must be true. And the data sets are not very useful because there's no replication. There's little development of a reproducible science around those kinds of data sets. So I think that this really is not a useful way of making progress for a lot of problems. And I just feel that it's a pity because this is not helping in terms of understanding the world. So even Land Pritchett has this um, argument against RCTs where he, I think, talks about how most of the RCTs are focused on either service provision or on poverty alleviation programs. And the bulk of real poverty alleviation that has come in the world has been through higher economic growth. And um, so thinking about growth and the kind of problems around how economic growth uh, can be generated in various circumstances in various countries does not lend itself to an RCT or experiment style approach, right? So, so if you care about the world, if you want to understand the world, if you want to make a difference in the world, you'll go down a different path. If you are a rat in that maze obeying certain rules of the game, the Lord of the Flies of the referees and the journals and the entire principal agent problem of bureaucracies either in the philanthropic institutions or in the aid organizations, then you'll go down a different path. I would invite you to look at the uh, hundreds of end notes in this book and look at what literature we have used. So in this book, we have no concern about the fads and the fashions and whatever else is going on because this book is not being submitted into the journals and referees game. We're just trying to understand the world. 
and you know, Kelkar and I are both copious readers. We read, we've been reading all our life. We read intensively. We study, study, study all the time. And uh, it's interesting to wonder what is the selection of the knowledge, the books, the papers, the articles that fed into this book. And you'll see very little of the conventional fashions of economics featuring at the end of this book. And I think that's a comment on where we are going wrong, or at least to Kelkar and me, where our loyalty is only to understand the world. And we are luckily immune to the Lord of the Flies. These are the papers that we find useful. So, please tell me if this is a fair analogy to make. Uh, when we look at things like RCTs and the various other sort of quasi-experimental approaches that are being taken in this space, it's, say, if you care about the health of an individual, it, this is about which medicine to administer, right? Do you take 650 milligrams of paracetamol or do you combine it with ibuprofen or not? Whereas if you truly care about the health of the individual, you want to know what their daily routine is, what their nutrition is, how they, how much they exercise and you know, what kind of a job they do or what they pursue and how they occupy their mind, right? So there are so many other aspects to the health of an individual and which pill do you take when you have uh, an infection is just one very tiny aspect of that person's lives. So as you say, a large fraction, the dominant fraction, 90% of health research is actually descriptive. You use large data sets and you look at what's going on. When you come to the narrow purpose of examining a certain treatment, does it work or not? We use clinical trials and we are all very conscious of the problems and difficulties of clinical trials. The treatment effects are different across different people because there are so many other complications. And that in a way is the real problem of a lot of what happens in the modern world. If I have two different medicines that are being given to me, how do they interact? You won't have a clinical trial that answers that. Each person is different. Our DNA is different. Our obesity is different. Our diet is different. Our environmental factors are different. And it is extremely difficult and costly to do hundreds of clinical trials that will explore that multidimensional space and come up with inclusive answers. So this in a way is a limitation that we should not be too proud and too arrogant about those claims that are made. A drug that is tested for a three-month treatment period, if it is applied for a long duration, does it really work? Right. Similarly, a lot of uh, trials have used male subjects. Do you really mean that you can use this for women who are patients? Does it port across countries? Does it port across diets? There's a whole bunch of difficulties that go with that. And in that sense, I'm cautious about the gold standard claims that are made around clinical trials. They are a element in the path to knowledge. They are a valuable and important element in the pathway to knowledge. They have limitations. We have to use them. We should not make exaggerated claims about them. I get embarrassed at how in economics... There are many people for whom if a paper is not an RCT, I will not read it. And once a paper is done using an RCT, I will start making exaggerated claims around it. And both these are just pointless. There are huge, huge limitations. You can't ask many interesting questions as you were saying a moment ago. Finally, the grand questions about a country are often not amenable to RCT. And each RCT has some local meaning, assuming it's administered properly. It has some local meaning. So I think of RCTs for practical problems as being a useful tool for an official, not really too much for an intellectual. So if I was an IAS officer in Bid district rolling out a program, I would do A-B testing. 
So think about the way. So it's it's grand A/B testing. It's a lot of A/B testing. So you want every marketing manager to do lots of A/B testing, but is that really central to science? Not really. So similarly, I would want every IAS officer to do lots of A/B testing to constantly innovate, experiment. Should the color of this thing be blue or should it be red? And you know, keep testing, keep figuring this works better, this works badly. But there is little generality in those results. and most important questions are not addressable using that particular vehicle the other critique i've seen of uh, not so while rcts come from the development economics sort of subdiscipline um, paul romer has made a critique of macroeconomics and um, uh, those fields saying that there's an overmathification of the field do you think there is merit over there as well that uh, there are perverse incentives where so once again it's the same story that i said a moment ago for me personally i get excited by the world but for a lot of the economics profession i think we came from uh, an applied maths tradition long long ago when economics was young in samuelson's time there were no data sets there were no computers and there were no data sets so economists got used to sitting with a whiteboard and inventing imaginary universes and analyzing those universes they cared about simplicity and tractability of models and that has its value i am not opposed to mathematical modeling but i am opposed to mathematical modeling when it's an end in itself it should be a means it's a means to an end and that end should be to understand the world so when the models give useful insights as a tool for understanding the world as a tool for trying to think about how to make decisions differently that's great when it just becomes a art show discussion about whether this assumption or this model is more elegant or less elegant i get really unexcited Uh, long ago in 1992 uh, larry summers has an article in the scandinavian uh, journal of economics where he tells a very interesting story he talks about market efficiency about financial markets being reasonably hard to forecast and he points out that one of the most powerful insights into market efficiency was the lateral thinking that led up to the idea let's look at how the mutual funds perform let's look at how money managers perform and if it was easy to beat markets by using public data then a lot of fund managers should add value should be able to beat right. the index and in fact when you look at that data you find that's not the case that's a very beautiful important blinding insight please note no rct just observational data that most fund managers do not beat the index it's a beautiful and important insight so it was a way to come at the question of market efficiency without necessarily writing down a structural model and asset pricing theory or uh, making strong claims about the world but just saying that if markets are re- reasonably efficient then it will be difficult to beat the market so fund managers should do poorly it's a lovely argument which can be expressed in two sentences of english and then it can be subjected to a great deal of wonderful observational statistics where we obtain data sets for the performance of large number of fund managers it does require some theoretically grounded thinking about what is an appropriate benchmark what is an appropriate risk measure but over time i think we've made enormous progress on understanding this basic proposition that generally fund managers don't add much value and that's one of the most powerful foundations for thinking that roughly speaking it is hard to forecast financial markets right. so this is an, a methodological example where we made progress and that progress came not by any of the orthodox claims that there's got to be a model or there's got to be an rct actually you've got to be creative feel that 
for too many economists there is not enough creativity and we just fall into a ritual where there is a fad and the journals are accepting a certain kind of article and then 500 people start running around manufacturing those kinds of articles the right. funders start funding those kind of articles there's just not enough fundamental first principles thinking who am i what's the question why am i here what are the important questions about the universe what research strategy might give me useful answers and if we should be much more creative we should be innovating we should be coming up with new ideas there's just so little innovation a large amount of cookie cutter papers come out so there was a point where instrumental variables became fashionable and suddenly thousands of economists were trying to come up with one contrived instrument after another and then that fad has subsided a bit and now we're doing less of it it's a disappointment because the sociology of science creates this lord of the flies environment that what kind of articles are currently being taken by the journals that is what you have to figure out and then you manufacture those articles and you make career progress it's a pity so here if this is the i mean economics is called the dismal science and you have painted a dismal picture as well uh, but if we want to make it a little more dismal and talk about india uh, how can we look at uh, the incentives for you know the the marginal economist who's sort of graduating college and also the connection with uh, sort of governance and sort of action in the economics so the two more dismal features about india the first is that uh, the data sets are worse okay, so for a typical author or a typical referee if you say that some data set came from some government source that is supposed to put an end to all questioning but unfortunately that's not true right okay, so there is a large amount of garbage in garbage out studies that are based on lousy data and because the referees don't care the researchers don't care once again what's disappointing is the researchers seem to have low interest in understanding the world the researchers are publication oriented so if the referees will not block papers that are done with bad data sets the researchers don't seem to mind that years and years of their life are being wasted on doing work that's frankly wrong or pointless or irrelevant uh, i just look at researchers and say your life is worth more than this but the incentives of the profession are to keep manufacturing those papers so this is problem number 1 and problem number 2 is that the gatekeepers are the editors and the referees who are typically outside india so okay. if you try to study india and you try to ask first principles questions in india then very often the gatekeepers are going to say that this is not an interesting question to me so there's somebody sitting in the united states there's somebody sitting far away who have their own discourse who have their own curiosity and that's fine it's good for them but it's a pity that they have a disproportionate and almost dominant influence upon economics as it is done here in india because they control the fate of each of these papers that we write where the gatekeeper chooses is this an interesting question and as a researcher here in india i feel i have a very different perspective and a point of view on where are we in india what are the interesting questions in india what are the not interesting questions in india and the gatekeepers far away have really very little judgment about india and the second problem is the gatekeepers judge what is a persuasive research strategy and what is not and here again the people far away basically have very little clue about the indian landscape what are the difficulties of indian data sets what are the difficulties of administration and implementation of research activities in india what are the subtleties of institutional details about what happened in india how do you take 
events and natural experiments in India and interpret them correctly. As an example, there are many, many papers surrounding the Sarfaisi law, which was enacted in 2002. I was one of the people that worked on that law. And I basically shake my head at most of those papers because neither do they understand the event correctly, nor do they use the CMI data correctly. But there are now many, many papers in top journals and those papers are considered the gospel truth on understanding the surface. And I'm just disappointed that we are messing up knowledge of economics in India by handing power to these gatekeepers outside. So in the sciences, there's been a change in the last couple of decades where you've had uh, a preprint revolution, if you will, with uh, Archive and other sort of um, uh, services coming in where the gatekeepers were disintermediated and this kind of uh, knowledge becoming more accessible and the the peer and peer review became a much wider set of people, right? Do you see such things happen in economics and in India? Economics actually always had a working paper culture. Right. So... I think even before archive, the economists were putting out preprints they call working papers. Right. And that's great. It is a way of disintermediating the gatekeeper. The second important vehicle through which the disintermediation is being done is Google Scholar. Google Scholar finds articles whether they're published or not. Uh, some of the highest cited papers that I have done are currently unpublished, meaning they were done ages ago. I never bothered publishing them because I knew this problem that the editors and the referees are going to say we're not interested. But they have racked up hundreds of citations. So I've lived this, that Google Scholar effectively is a way of bypassing the gatekeepers and getting your work out to an audience and being noticed and being cited. And the third development is the blogs, where we can increasingly build a scientific literature around blogs. Uh, in the sciences, there's been another interesting dimension of progress, uh, most notably the journal that is called PLOS One. Uh, PLOS One is a startup which has become one of the top 20 journals of the world. And one of the distinctive things, they had many innovations, but one of the most important innovations that they introduced was that they asked the referee, do not judge whether this is an interesting and important question. Because if some author somewhere in the world chose to put years and years of her life into doing a research project, it must be an interesting and important research project. So because there's no artificial scarcity of the number of pages of the journal, Ross right. one says to the referee, we only want you to judge whether the work is correct. That do the answers offered in the paper correctly flow from the data set, from the foundations, from the axiomatic framework that is proposed by the authors. So judge the extent to which the claims of the paper are trustworthy and persuasive. Don't judge whether this is an interesting and important paper. I think that's another big step forward. Uh, relatively few economics papers are presently going to PLOS One, but this kind of approach can uh, become more important as we go along. So in short, I think there are these pathways through which the change is coming, but it's a slow process. The fact remains that the employers, the traditional economics departments of the universities, are hiring and promoting entirely on traditional journal publication with lists of what are the journals that will be given value and given respect. But then there are other kinds of activities going on in India. For example, research institutions that are now coming up are less hidebound like the traditional economics departments. So the world is changing. 
Right. And I think it's important to have these kinds of conversations and debates to think about how this world is changing. And over here, do you see a little bit of a narrative conflict between the equation, say, between math, statistics, experimentation, and the science of economics that's happening worldwide and in India? Because here, most undergraduate programs in economics still don't teach people calculus and statistics properly. This right? is a and problem that has been there all along. And uh, that, that needs to change, right? If, yeah, but that's, that's orthogonal to the present discussion. So right. for decades... We've had a odd problem in the nature of undergraduate economics instruction in India. And uh, I think that that is a separate puzzle. But right. our main discussion today has been about the research community and there right. are problems there. That's right. And uh, sort of my final question in this, uh, Dr. Shah, is so in the science section of your book, you talk about fairly simple but elegant and important ideas and spend some time on it, right? You spend time on the idea of price and the value and the role it plays. You look at general equilibrium effects and you look at a few basic concepts as the science and the science of policymaking. And sometimes people just don't respect that sufficiently, uh, let alone uh, more complex co um, concepts. So um, here in India, if you are an economist who wants to work in government or with government, and both you and Vijay Kelkar have worked in government, actually as lateral entry folk, well before the idea of a lateral entry became something that people talked about, uh, how do you see that sort of informing your um, uh, your ability to be a good economist? Sort of working in government, one, you get access and you know how decisions are taken that others outside won't, uh, but how else would... Um... Well, in the book, we are giving away all our secrets that if we have ever innovated and come up with novel ideas and understood policy problems a bit better than some others, it is because of these kinds of chapters. So this book it pulls together our uh, insights and understanding and it is not commonplace. So sometimes I feel these things are obvious. Sometimes they are not. So that is why it made sense to write a book like this. But but today, what are the opportunities for an economist to work with the government in any capacity and thereby understand the world a little better? Today, it's a little difficult, but uh, I'm optimistic that the world will change. So I think that the, some of the best uh, places to be now are the new kinds of research institutions, not the traditional universities, not the traditional government-dominated universities. I think these institutions are facing tremendous difficulties. But there is a new breed of research institutions that is now coming up. I think that's where some of the best work is happening and the institutional arrangement is the best structured in order to support thinking about the world and coming up with new knowledge about the world in an honest and direct way. So I'm optimistic that there is and will be a capable economics community in India. It will just look quite different from what it used to in the past. Uh, Dr. Shah, thank you so much for coming on the Pragati podcast. It was a pleasure to have you here. Thanks a lot. Thank you for staying with us till the end. If you have any questions or comments, do write in to podcast at thinkpragati.com. And hey, if you like the podcast and listen to us on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, please leave us a rating and a review. It'll mean a lot to us. The Pragati Podcast is available on the IBM Podcast app and pretty much every other podcast app and platform. We are there everywhere. Hi. 
I hope you enjoyed that show. We'd like to thank our sponsors on the network this week. Thank you, HDSC Life, for coming on board. Also, would like to thank Storytel for continuing the long-time advertising that they've been doing with us. And if you have a brand and you'd like to advertise with us, please send us an email. We'd love to talk to you. And let me tell you a couple of things that you should check out this week. On States of Anarchy, Humsini talks about the Brazil-India relationship. On Agla Station Adulthood, Ayushi and Ritasha talk about pleasure, sex, and much more. On a nostalgia-laden episode of the Geek Fruit Podcast, Tejas and Dinkar go back to the franchise with the Sam Raimi, Tobey Maguire Spider-Man movies and talk about how they hold up today, 12 years after the last movie came out. On our Kannada podcast, Thalle Arate, scholar Avinash Amble combines neuroscience, mathematical logic and the cutting edge of computer science to explain the history of machine vision to Pawan and Surya. On Tapri Tales, Madhuri weaves a tale around a conversation between three friends. Thanks and keep listening. Namaste, I am Saurabh Chandra. And I am Pranay Kutistani. When the door is closed, we will be able to get the door open. We will be able to get the door open. We will be able to get the door open. We will be able to get the door open. We will be able to get the door open. We will be able to get the door open. We will be able to get the door open. We will be able to get the door open. We will be able to get the door open. We will be able to get the door open. We will be able to get the door open. We will be able to get the door open. We will be able to get the door open. We will be able to get the door open. जहाँ प्रणय और मैं एक से एक इंटरेस्टिंग टॉपिक्स की तह तक जाएंगे आर्टिफिशियल इंटेलिजेंस बिटकॉइन पाकिस्तान मेडिकल एजुकेशन करेंसी क्राइसिस कभी हम दोनों के साथ और अक्सर स्पेशल एक्सपर्ट गेस्ट की कंपनी में सुनिए हमें आईवीएम की वेबसाइट ऐप या अपने फेवरेट पॉडकास्टिंग प्लेटफॉर्म पर हर दूसरे हफ्ते